My name is Charlotte Burney, and I'm a 17-year-old attending the Ethical Culture Fieldston School in New York City. My goal is to explore the nationwide anxiety epidemic by hearing from authors, specialists, and educators. This is A is for Anxiety. Today, I'm excited to talk to Catherine Martinez. Dr. Martinez is a licensed registered psychologist who obtained her psychology doctorate at Rutgers University. She helps assess and treat both youth and adults that struggle with OCD, phobias, anxiety, depression, and more. She's also spent time helping parents and educators learn how to provide support for teens that are struggling with some of these disorders. In 2006, she became a partner with the San Francisco Bay Area Center for Cognitive Therapy, which encourages evidence-based care. Dr. Martinez then moved to Canada in 2011 and worked at the Vancouver CBD Center for six years and is now in solo practice in Vancouver. In 2009, she co-wrote My Anxious Mind, a teen's guide to anxiety and panic, which teaches adolescents behavioral strategies to manage their anxiety. Dr. Martinez, I am so honored to speak with you today. Hello, I'm happy to be um, on the receiving end. Um, so I guess my first question, what I want to know from everybody that I speak to is, why did you choose to write about anxiety? What drew you to this topic? Well, at the time, uh, there really was a gap in the literature, and there were no books or workbooks for teens specifically. Um, there was uh, literature and books that a parent could read to a younger child, and of course there was lots of um, great workbooks for adults, but there really was nothing for that middle school and high school youth who was struggling with anxiety. So when I put, um, put it to my partner that perhaps we should co-author something, it seemed to be the obvious choice. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, a lot of kids my age struggle with anxiety, and I've noticed that there aren't many books for us to go to. Um, I know that you've treated and diagnosed both teens and adults, that's correct? That's right. So how does anxiety pre- um, present itself differently in different ages? Um, that's a fantastic question. Um, I'll... I'll- I'll jump in and answer it, but if I'm taking too long, by all means, um, just interrupt me. Essentially, it's a bit of what we call nature-nurture mix, which really comes down to we're all uh, born into this world with um, our our genetic makeup, and within that, we have the predisposition for things to go in a particular direction, but we need the environment to activate those predisposing factors. Um, When I do workshops, I often talk about little um, plant seeds in a drawer that if you if you have some seeds for carrots, for example, you may um, just have dormant seeds in a drawer and they do nothing. As soon as you give them soil and water, sunlight, they're able to germinate and grow. And that is really what it looks like in humans with our predisposition towards things. If the environment is right, um, then it will flourish. What is, of course, interesting is that we are complicated beings, and so not everybody is going to flourish in the same way with the same mix of sun, water, 
soil, etc. And we know this, so there are some kids who are what we call resilient, and they may have suffered uh, tremendous hardship, and yet they don't seem to meet criteria for an anxiety disorder, whereas there are other youth who, um, for all its for all intents and purposes, don't um, seem to have suffered much hardship, and yet they really struggle, uh, perhaps with one or more anxiety disorders. So all of that to say, um, it is, we're, we're not 100% certain why things go the way they do, but in little children, what we see is often a mix of worry types. So we early on don't necessarily see clear diagnostic patterns, but those um, emerge over time. So younger kids, preschool, um, early elementary years may be struggling with general worries of being separated from their parents, fears of making new friends, worries that they might get sick or something bad might happen. And so those are shared features across essentially three common anxiety disorders, that being separation anxiety, social anxiety, and generalized anxiety disorder. And then as the child matures, those patterns or those pathways become more uh, detailed and organized and therefore more diagnostically clear. And so that young warrior who had a sort of smattering of things, they no longer be socially anxious and isn't so worried about their health and bad things happening anymore. But as they go into middle and high school, the pattern of social anxiety emerges and their primary focus um, of worry will be on social factors. Uh, that's not always the case. Some kids will end up with all three diagnoses, and those, of course, are not the only three anxiety disorders that happen in youth, but those are the top three that we see most often occurring. And mm -hmm. so, uh, just in conclusion, um, the presentation isn't necessarily um, vastly different than in adults. The themes are still the same, but the themes are, are relative to their situation. So whereas an adult with social anxiety might be worried about uh, dating or messing up at work or not being able to perform in front of co-workers, um, the elementary school child may be more worried about not having a play date or having no one on the recess yard or messing up on a school assignment. Um, so it looks a little different that way. Um, and then the other difference is uh, somatically. So children tend to, at least the younger children, talk about it more in terms of physiology, so that they have stomach aches or headaches, whereas an adult is more likely to say, I'm worried about messing up um, at this work review tomorrow. Uh, so it tends to be more cognitive or behavioral, whereas in children it's more somatic. But obviously as that child becomes more sophisticated, um, as they reach middle and high school, then they're more able to say directly what's going on, and they may report less uh, symptoms as their primary feature. So hopefully that was helpful. That was a lot. No, very helpful. Do you think that for teenagers, the ability to identify that their feelings such as a stomach ache or a headache that you mentioned is actually from anxiety, do you think that lessens their stomach ache or headache, the fact that they're able to identify where it's coming from, or are the feelings all still there and the pain, all st is it all still there? I think it really depends. Um, I actually, it's a great question because 
it's a timely question. I have a lovely um, grade nine female student uh, I'm working with right now who has obsessive compulsive disorder. And at the end of her grade eight year, um, she was reporting these stomach aches and we have, we've encouraged her to get it checked out by the doctors. They say there's nothing medical going on. It's probably anxiety. This is a student who's quite knowledgeable about her OCD. She's had it diagnosed for well over a year at this stage. Um, and we've been treating it. So this would be a teen who's got good aware, self-awareness of what's going on. Um, and yet the stomachache, um, it has taken her a little bit of time to recognize that this probably is anxiety, that it is not um, a medical condition. Um, and it's not really going away. Just having that knowledge that this is anxiety, she's nervous about the return to school, etc., cetera, um, has not really lessened it. Um, I do think it depends, though. Um, this is a client, of course, who already has, um, she actually has two diagnoses, although we're working on OCD right now, um, whereas I would suspect that a client or a student with um, perhaps less severe symptoms may, once they learn, oh, this is anxiety, um, may actually get some relief and, and have a name for what these sensations are, and therefore, with that alone, may feel some relief. Um, this is actually one of the reasons why panic disorder, of all the disorders that we treat within the anxiety spectrum, has such high rates of recovery, because a big part of treating panic disorder is helping the individual recognize that the physiological symptoms they're experiencing are not warnings of danger or a medical condition, but in fact are the normative responses of the fight, flight, freeze response system just going off at the wrong time. And that simple knowledge or education can be enough to help somebody literally turn around from having suffered symptoms for many years to no longer being symptomatic. Most people with panic will need more than just psychoeducation, but indeed that's a nice example of where knowledge and education about what those symptoms are can sometimes offer tremendous relief. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so in your book, you discuss this, this worry wheel for people that are listening. Can you please describe what this is and examples of each stage of it? Uh, yeah. So, um, the worry wheel is really, um, and there's lots of other terms. So I would definitely encourage, um, readers of this book, if you've already got, a a metaphor or an analogy that you use that you like that's similar to what we've presented in the book, then by all means insert that if it's more familiar to you. Um, some people do talk about the worry train, um, which is a similar concept. Um, but the worry wheel is really when we um, have a concern in front of us. For example, perhaps it is, um, well, we are now, uh, you know, school year is upon us. So this might be a project that's coming due soon. Um, and then we start to sort of have some cognitions or thoughts about that. For example, what happens if um, I don't do as well as I did last time? Or I have to do well with this one. What happens if I don't and my grade continues to drop? Um, and so then that worry kind of gets spinning and gets going. And then new worries come on. You know, well, if I don't do well in this class, then I really better do well in that other class. And what happens if I don't do so well in that class either? And I know I'm only in grade nine, but 
let's suppose my grade nine year doesn't go well. Then what? What about grade 10? And we are spinning. We are off to the races, spinning with a whole host of cognitive thoughts, which are only then going to um, encourage some physiological anxiety. So that may be where we start to notice some sweating or our stomach is churning, or maybe we're having trouble breathing. And then with those sensations, we may end up engaging in behaviors that are not so helpful. And the classic unhelpful behavior in anxiety is avoidance. So avoidance may be, um, I'm just not going to pull out that project and start it right now because I'm too anxious and I can't handle it. So I'm going to procrastinate. Or maybe what I do is I decide that um, I, it's the opposite. I'm going to pull it out right now and instead of having a balanced day for me, I'm going to dedicate six hours straight to working on this project. So we end up on that worry wheel starting with some negative cognition, which then uh, generates these sensations and then puts us into unhelpful behaviors. And they're all reciprocating with one another. So we have this... Um, multi-directional relationship between all three parts um, and it only makes the anxiety worse. So what are ways that we can get the wheel to stop spinning? Well, um, when I work with my students, I often ask them, what kind of a, a person are you? Do you think of yourself as more of a thinker? Are you more of a doer? Are you somebody who's very sensitive to their body and kind of how their body and based on that, then we will decide, do we start with some more physical or somatic skills and tools? Should we start with some more cognitive tools or should we start with behavioral tools? And the wonderful thing about this wheel is that it really doesn't matter which symptoms are most prominent, nor does it matter which tool you use, because of this reciprocal relationship between all three parts doesn't actually matter where you enter, just making change in one area will, by nature, impact change in the other area. Um, so, some, for some students, um, we just simply need to get their physiology a bit lowered. And I, I sometimes use the old-fashioned example of a manual or six-shift car that you cannot change gears. Um, you cannot change from say fifth gear into first gear. You have to go through all the so fifth to fourth to third, and so on and so forth. Um, and so what we need to do is just get your anxiety levels down a little bit physiologically, and then we can have a look at what you're thinking. And when you've got some relief from your thought patterns, then you'll probably feel more confident in being able to make behavior change. Um, I'm happy right now, or I can wait for your prompt to talk a little bit about each of those three tools, but that would be the, the broad base uh, to your question of how to slow or stop the worry wheel is to start to use some tools to counter those three areas of physiological, cognitive, or behavioral worry. That was actually my next question. I would love to talk about the tools. <laughs> Good. Okay, we're on the same wavelength. So what do you do? So if you feel like, and by the way, if you're not sure if the answer to that question, you know, am I a thinker, a feeler, a doer, then it really doesn't matter. So I'll go through all, I'll go through all three categories. And then as a listener, you can decide, does one appeal more to me? The other important thing is to recognize that sometimes a recipe calls for more than one ingredient. Well, usually it does. And so if one thing doesn't work, try it in combination with a second or even a third. The other thing is sometimes time and place. 
sometimes I, I use one strategy under one circumstance, it, it works great, and then I try it, you know, in the busy hustle and bustle of my high school hallway in between classes, and it flops. It, it doesn't work at all. So just because one doesn't work doesn't mean you want to give up entirely. It just might be that you try it on later under different circumstances. So an example of somatic or basically physical management um, most, it's been wonderful practicing for now over 20 years. When I first started working with youth, I would spend at least a full session on this, sometimes two. Now I rarely spend much more than 10 or 15 minutes on this because most youth already know these tools because at least in California um, and now here in British Columbia, many of the schools um, are teaching students um, these skills already at school. So this is mindfulness-based work. Um, this might be deep breathing, what we call diaphragmatic deep breathing, where you take in a breath through your nose, you hold it um, for maybe the count of three or four, and then you release it through your mouth with your mouth um, shaped like an O, as if you're blowing out birthday candles. And again, you try and release for a count of three, four, or more. And then you do another pause before you bring in that next breath. And if you can slow your breathing down, maybe eight to 12 breaths per minute for use, um, that represents a more slower pace, relaxed breathing. Many youth, when they're anxious, are breathing at rates of 20 breaths per minute or more. Um, a lovely way to test this out for yourself is just set your timer for 15 seconds and breathe, and in and then out is a complete breath. And count how many in out did I do in 15 seconds, times it by four for a minute, and that's your breath per minute. Many anxious youth are breathing well into the 20s when they really should be breathing 8 to 12. Um, and again, you know, this is not a, an absolute science, but on average. And so then right there you know you're feeling anxious. So you can slow your breath rate down by simply doing five minutes of diaphragmatic deep breathing twice a day, every day for a couple of weeks, and that can really help re-regulate your breathing. Another great simple strategy um, is to um, do some exercise. It's very hard to be anxious and exercise. So if you go for a run, shoot hoops, um, or even just put on some music and dance, these are great ways of getting your physiological system calmed down. Even though, ironically, it's a bit revved up because you're exercising, um, you're revved up because of energy as opposed to anxiety. And then things like relaxing your muscles, imagine visual imagery where you can imagine a peaceful scene on a beach or in a woodland um, meadow, um, and just really focus on that image using all five senses and then noticing how relaxed your muscles can become. Um, there are lots and lots of apps out there designated uh, to providing guided meditation, guided breathing that can really help with the physiology. When we move into the cognitive realm, um, again, we're looking to um, take a look at our thinking patterns and decide if it's helping me or not helping me. So how helpful is it when I say to myself, I'm not going to do well on this project, I might fail. If I fail this project, there's a chance I'm going to fail the full year class, and then I might not get into university. As the listener might imagine, this is not really a helpful way of thinking. It's helpful if it sends you into productive use of time um, and behaviors. So if having the thought, oh my gosh, I might fail, 
actually alerts you to pull out your book and start processing for the exam or doing some work towards your paper. And you do it in a balanced way. Take a break and then you go to some other things and come back. That one might argue is helpful. But if it's so much so that it gets you onto that worry wheel far into the future, then it's really not helpful. So then we have to look at, well, what's the possibility versus probability? And this is a lovely intervention um, that I really like to use, which is just holding up your hand. You've got four digits and a thumb. And on your thumb, that's where your worry thought sits. So my worry thought is, I'm going to fail this exam. Well, the truth is, yes, that's a possibility. You might fail the exam. But there's at least four more other possibilities. So what are those? Well, I might not fail, but I might not do so well. I might pass and do really well. Um, I might do average. I might oversleep and miss it and have to make it up. Right there, we've got five possibilities. And then we're going to ask our non-anxious brain, brain, what is the most likely probability? Uh, well, out of all of that, the, for most students, the most likely outcome is going to be that they'll do all right. Um, and then you can ask yourself, well, how will I help myself do all right? Well, I probably should study. Um, I should set aside maybe one or two hours or I need to start writing this paper, so I need to figure out what my introductory statement is. So that becomes a way of challenging those wheel-spinning anxious thoughts. And then finally, it's the action stage. What can I do behaviorally to help myself? And I, in a way, I just spoke about that. So these are helpful actions, studying a little bit, starting the paper, um, splitting it into chunks. But essentially, the, the most logical behavior that we want clients with anxiety to engage in is what we call approach behaviors. Because approach is the opposite of avoid. And anxiety just wants us to avoid. Anxiety wants us to hang back, hunker down, and not do anything. Um, so don't ride the bus if you're anxious of, of riding buses. You know, don't go on the date if you're afraid of, of messing up socially. Um, and instead, we want to approach. So approach is best done in small, bite-sized pieces, bit by bit. Um, sort of like that proverb, slow and steady wins the race. Yeah. So those would be three categories of techniques, the physical, the breathing, meditation, relaxation, then cognitive, looking at is this helpful, and if not, then what's a more helpful way of thinking, and then finally approach behaviors. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, for me, I find it really interesting, especially because my whole family has a little bit of anxiety, and for my brother, it makes him just want to get the work done and it's made him very efficient. And for me, it makes me not even want to start. So I, I now understand that and see that. Um, yes, I mean, I, I'm very um, open and honest with my clients that part of the reason I fell into this line of work and I really love so much what I do is I was an incredibly anxious adolescent and young adult. Um, and really can understand what they're going through. Um, I'm a firm believer that you do not need to have experienced what you treat clients for. I don't think it's necessary, but I do think it gives me a slight, um, uh, it gives me a boost in really getting what it feels like to be an anxious 16-year-old. Granted, that was almost 30 years ago that I was an anxious 16-year-old, but I, it's not that long ago for me to have forgotten. Um, and you're absolutely right, Charlotte, that it presents differently in different people. And it's unfortunate that sometimes parents and educators um, miss 
students who are anxious because they have a singular view of how they think of anxiety. And so if the student doesn't present in that way, they can miss it. Um, and I, you know, I love my parents. I feel like they were good people, but they really missed my anxiety for many years because they just assumed a hardworking student who was overworking was a good thing. They didn't get that my perfectionism um, and long, long hours studying were really not healthy. Yeah. I think that for my friends, at least, anxiety is now becoming a much bigger topic. So when we really overwork ourselves, our parents are definitely, our parents and our teachers are interested in coming up to us and just asking, hey, what's going on? How are you doing? You look kind of tired. I I think that they're definitely paying more attention as time goes on. Yes, I think generationally we've seen a shift. I also think, and again, um, although I did my degree and training on the East Coast of the U.S., um, having moved to the West Coast of the U.S. and now Canada since 2003, um, so, I, so I, it may be different coast to coast, but I definitely see stigma decreasing. There's much more conversation around this and allowance and understanding um, than there certainly was for me growing up in the 70s and 80s. Yeah. I mean, especially for extra time on tests in school and standardized tests, um, educators are taking anxiety much more seriously and offering students who need extra time for anxiety that time, which I think is really important. I I agree. And and there's a tremendous amount, unfortunately, about the education system that is brought with, um, you know, or areas that really don't um, work for many, many students, not just the anxious students that have nothing to do with the real world. Um, You know, there's there's so few situations um, in one's career where you're going to have to produce in a a timed way and never have an opportunity to go back. Um, You know, even I asked you the question before we started, is this live or not? Um, Because if it's live, then, yes, maybe I don't have a chance go back but you know what if I really messed up and we were alive there would be recourse you could I might say to you afterwards hey can we can you invite me back again just that I have a second chance um and if you're being kind you might say yes whereas in school what's this idea that you take the test and you have you vomit because you were anxious that's it doesn't really make sense um not how it is for most of us as adults so why would we put kids under that kind of time pressure um and of course if they also have anxiety it's only going to make it worse yeah and that's actually another thing i wanted to talk to you about which is that in school if i go in and i'm planning on taking a test third period and then i get this massive headache and i decide i want to go home I think a teacher would be much more understanding if I go in the next day and say, you know what, it turns out I had a fever and I was physically ill versus if I went in the next day and say, I just got so worried I got a massive headache. I think a teacher is probably more likely to say to me, well, you still should have taken the test. Right. Yes. We have this unfortunate um, uh, difference of 
value and understanding when it comes to medical versus psychological. Um, and we do. Um, psychological needs are not equated um, with medical needs. And it is a very unfortunate thing. And so, so yes, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Yeah. I mean, I find that really interesting also. And I, I was actually wondering how you think we could encourage educators um, to recognize that they need to take anxiety just as seriously as they do physical illness. Well, one of the biggest ways is going to be educating educators. Um, and I know here in British Columbia, um, having had a few friends recently go through the educators training, um, there's a standardized um, certification you need to take here, there is very little time spent on mental health. Um, and it, it's a bit shocking in a way, because mental health is becoming so much more a part of the average classroom, um, and not just anxiety, learning disabilities and ADHD and depression. Um, it'll be interesting to see what research ends up telling us are the statistics. I think these are in process right now to understanding um, how many students are um, struggling with mental health. Right now, we know the numbers for anxiety, and depending on which um, which prevalence study you look at, um, it's upwards of 30%. So that is three out of 10 in every classroom struggling with anxiety disorder. Wow. And that is just anxiety. We're not even talking about depression, ADHD, other mental health conditions. Um, my guess, personally, is that it, at some point we will probably find that in the human population, one in two people are struggling with some form of mental health um, or mental illness. So, the number, so regardless, the numbers are big. So the first step is just educating the educators, teaching them what to look for, um, I will say that when I do, again, training for educators, which I do a fair bit, um, I'm noticing over time that they are much more aware now than they have been in the past. And the biggest awareness is recognizing that that disruptive student, the student that acts out or is a bit gruff or um, rude or combative, is probably anxious. That most kids do not start out at the beginning of their school year or their school day to pick off the that is not their, you know, desired pathway. Um, over time, that might be, but it often stems from a place of insecurity, low confidence, and therefore anxiety. So that's something I really train educators to be aware of, is not to write off um, the oppositional students as, as uncaring, um, but to actually probe a little bit more. Um, sometimes the students that cause the most disruption are the students that need the most help. Yeah, that makes so, sense. I would just say educate the educators. That's probably going to be our, our, our best and strongest um, way forward in, in helping reduce the lack of health and accommodations that students sometimes suffer. Yeah. So you mentioned that statistic three in 10 um, suffer from some kind of anxiety disorder. And I know when I go to school and I'm talking to my friends, it's likely that someone or a couple people are going to say, I'm anxious about this test. I'm worried about my presentation. So what is the difference between being anxious about something and having an anxiety disorder? And are the treatments different? What What's the difference between the two? Um, lovely question. 
helpful, I, I hope, for your listeners. Um, so what I, how I would answer that is that 100% of certainly high school students, maybe not so much in elementary school, but I would say 100% of high school and university students will experience anxiety. And that is because as humans, we are, we are functionally um, disposed to be anxious for survival reasons. So we have something called the fight flight freeze system, which is our nervous system, our parasympathetic and our sympathetic nervous system is there to protect us from danger and to alert us to important things. So if we think about school, hopefully for the vast majority it's not dangerous, but a lot of it might be important. It's important because you want to pass the test. It's important because you want to make the final cut for the football team. It's important because you really want to have uh, a romantic partner, and so you want to be able to ask somebody out or go out with them. So that is what anxiety is there for. It's there to alert you to these things so that you can take helpful action. So most students are anxious at certain points because it is functional or useful. It tips over into this non-useful area when the anxiety becomes so much that your normal day-to-day -day functioning is impacted. So if I'm a little bit anxious about a test, and I stand in the hallways with you and I say, yeah, I'm really stressed out too, really worried I'm not going to do well, that's true, I am worried I'm not going to do well, but I'm able to tuck that worry aside and make a plan with myself that perhaps when I get home, I will study a little bit, and then I'll take a break to go to soccer practice and come home, have dinner with my family, then I'll study a little bit more, um, and then maybe I'll even wake up half an hour early and review things and then head off to the test. But I still go to soccer, dinner with my family, get to bed at a reasonable hour. Yeah. If, however, I have an undiagnosed or even diagnosed anxiety disorder, I'm now standing with everyone in the hallway saying, I'm so anxious about this test, I really think I'm going to fail. And then it carries on as I'm carrying my backpack to the car or on my walk home. Uh, I'm thinking about it. Yeah, I really think I will fail. And then what if I also fail the rest of the class? And then what if I fail grade nine? And da, da, da. I get home. I'm so anxious. I can't study. I just put my bag in the hallway closet, shut the door, and I just zone out on YouTube. I watch two hours of YouTube, and then I'm like, oh, crap, soccer, where are my cleats? Um, I go to soccer, but I'm kind of not really playing, paying attention because my mind's now on the test that I didn't study for because I lost track of time zoning out on YouTube. Rush home, say, Mom, I'm not hungry. I can't eat with you guys. I've got to study. So I skip a meal, or I eat potato chips, and then open my book. But I'm so anxious physiologically now. My heart's racing. I'm sweating, shaking. It's really hard to concentrate. So my concentration is poor, so I'm probably not paying, uh, not able to take so much in. So then I go to bed late. I end up staying up till one because it takes me four hours to study one hour's worth of material. And then I don't get great sleep. I sleep from one and I set my alarm for six. So now I've got five hours of sleep. This is somebody who we would say, if this is coming a normative pattern as opposed to one day out of, I don't know, 50, but maybe it's like one out of five, then we've got someone who's probably got the beginnings of an anxiety disorder because their functioning is impaired. So that's really the difference. Having some anxiety is there to protect us from danger, to prepare us for important things, but when it tips over to interfere in our normal day-to-day -day functioning, the ability to socialize, get some exercise, eat, sleep, 
enjoy life, then we are in problematic territory. Okay. Yeah. And that makes sense. I, I think that anxiety has become such a common term now, both for the better and for the worse, because I think that people just talk about how anxious they are all the time. And one person talking about how anxious they are about their chemistry test mate might make another person think about how anxious they are for their math test. And then they leave each other and it kind of spreads like wildfire. Yes. You know, the thing I, I do want to make a quick mention of, um, and it, you know, possibly you, you were already preparing to ask this, I don't know, but, and I don't see it a lot in my practice, but I do wonder, will I start to see it? Which is us becoming overly, um, sort of accommodating to anxiety, not just in students, but in adults as well, so that we are going from forcing people to do much more than they're able and only making their anxiety worse, to giving them so much room to take care of themselves that we're actually not asking them to develop any resilience. And I don't have the right or the magic answer to kind of how to find that middle place. But the other part is, um, and, I, and I do like to think of my own experience in, in a way when I say this, which is sometimes being forced to have to manage one's anxiety can really make you stronger. Um, and I do believe that part of my struggle with anxiety uh, led me to push myself in ways that perhaps I wouldn't have pushed myself if I had somebody um, letting me essentially avoid um, some of the time. Yeah, completely. Um, so one last question that I had, which I think is really important and really prevalent in the lives of teenagers is about social media. And it's a huge part of my life and a huge part of the lives of my friends and people spend hours on it a day. You mentioned how people might go home and spend two hours on YouTube and then freak out because they wasted two hours on YouTube that they could be studying and then freak out that they're wasting time by freaking out. And it basically turns into the cycle. But beyond that, social media can cause a lot of social anxiety. So I was wondering what you've noticed, um, how if you've noticed the anxiety in teenagers change as social media has gotten more and more popular? Yes, I mean, I, I think there's been a lot of um, media coverage um, on this and, and really looking at uh, the links between elevated anxiety and, and literal hours logged on social media or even just digital media. Um, so, I mean, I can't, and as I've not read those studies or been part of that research, I can't comment specifically, but I can say anecdotally, I definitely see that there's a correlation between um, level of social anxiety or even just social pressure, felt pressure, when, uh, when students and young adults are spending excessive amounts of time. But it's also not just the hours logged, but it's how they inter interface with social and digital media. So if a person is negatively comparing themselves, if a person finds themselves checking every couple of minutes to see has anyone else posted anything since, 
um, what are they saying about the post I posted, um, then that is, a, a, you know, a recipe for elevated anxiety, as opposed to the teen who posts something, maybe gets a little bit of negative feedback and thinks, oh, man, shouldn't have said that. Um, well, you know, I guess I'll find out who my true friends are. Um, and then puts it aside for an hour to go play soccer or have a family meal and then check, you know, an hour and a half later um, and is able to tolerate. So we're talking about that tolerance factor. Um, they're able to tolerate a little bit more. These may be individuals who have a little bit more resilience. And I think it comes down to vulnerability. There are some of us who are just more vulnerable to negative comparisons or feeling this need to know, um, you know, what's going on. So having to do that checking. One of the cardinal uh, features of some anxiety disorders is tolerating uncertainty. Um, and in anxiety disorders, that, that is very weak. So that inability to tolerate uncertainty. And social media is fraught with that. What happens if somebody posts something back? Or what happens if I'm not included? What happens if I am included? So suddenly this need to know what this need for certainty can really fuel um, the anxious individual when they are on social media. Yeah, I, I think that social media, something I've thought about a lot is you post when you're at your happiest. You post, I just got ice cream or celebrating my A on my final and you're often on social media when you're not eating ice cream or still studying for that test. And I think that's a really hard thing to balance because you want to post because everybody else is doing it, but still you're you're continuating and perpetuating continuating is not the word. You're <laughs> perpetuating the cycle. Yeah, actually it's a very interesting observation you're making and I, I haven't obviously thought about it because you've just said it, but I think there's definitely something to that. When do you post versus when do you check? What emotional state are you in at those two different times? Um, and of course, you know, what? who are the people that you are hearing from? Are these people who, who want to pull you up and make you feel good? Or are these people who actually want to one-up you or put you down a notch or two? Um, and that can really influence your experience on social media. Um, and adolescence is a developmental stage of wanting to fit in, of wanting to be quote unquote normal, and that's for developmental purposes. And so social media can either, um, and it tends to do it in extremes, bring us together or wedge us, put a wedge between us and, and push us apart. Um, and so it's, a, it's a, a platform that is fraught with extreme completely um well thank you so much for talking to me today I really enjoyed listening to you and talking to you and just hearing your perspective on everything it's been my pleasure I'm, I'm thrilled um that you've got this podcast um that you're developing and that hopefully you're going to get the really nice following of listeners um, who are helped by what you are presenting, because I think it's a very timely discussion, um, especially for students and young adults, uh, to be able to navigate their way in this rather complicated 21st century. So um, I think it's a fantastic thing you're doing, and I'm really honored that you uh, reached out and have included me. So thank you.